Well, hello again, I'm Tony Payne, and welcome to this slightly special edition of The Painful Truth. In this episode, we're going to be reading through the first draft of the introductory chapter to the new Two Ways to Live evangelistic book, the one that I'm hoping to write over the next couple of months, and which I'm hoping that you can help me write. Now, you can hear all about that, about why I'm embarking on this project and how I'd like you to help me in the last couple of posts that I've put out on The Painful Truth. In this episode, we're just going to be reading through this first draft chapter. If you'd like to give me feedback and comments on this chapter, that's what I'd really love you to do. You'll probably need to go over to the website and download the PDF of the chapter so that you can see the text. There's line numbers there listed on the text so that you can refer to different paragraphs and sections. You can find that PDF over at thepainfultruth.online. Just look for the post that's called The Two Ways to Live Book introduction and you can download the PDF there and you can use that to make comments. If you don't want to bother with that, if you just want to send me some general comments, some impressions and ideas you get from listening to this episode, that's also fine. Either way, the way to contact me and give me your feedback is to send an email to tonyjpain at me.com. Well, without any further ado, let's get into this introductory chapter. And after I'm done, I'll make a few comments about why I've done it the way I've done it and just to give you some further thoughts to reflect upon. Are you one of this book's readers? One of the best pieces of advice I received as a young writer was to jot down the names of a few specific people I'd like to have as readers. Put those names on post-it notes, I was told, stick those notes to the side of the computer screen, and write every sentence as if you were talking directly to them. I have a few names in mind for this book. I'm not going to tell you who they are, but I will tell you a bit about them, because it will help you decide if this book is for you. My post-it note readers are quite different from one another in all sorts of ways. Different ages and stages, different places they live, different things that fascinate them. But one thing they have in common is that none of them are church types. Some of them had a Christian upbringing, or went to church schools, or were churchgoers at one time. One has had no meaningful contact with the Christian church at all, and would describe himself as an agnostic. But none of them would step through a church door from one year to the next, funerals or weddings accepted. And none would describe themselves in any meaningful sense as a Christian. All the same, I'm reluctant to think of any of them simply as non-Christians. This is because all of my readers are perhaps more Christian than they realise. They are not so much non-Christians as post-Christians. It's not Buddhism or Islam that they have sidled away from or largely ignore or reject outright. It's Christianity. In this, my imagined readers are stand-ins for the vast majority of people who live in Western countries like Australia, where I live. Most Australians are not Christians in any explicit sense, but nearly all of our foundational values as a society are profoundly Christian. If we were to get down under the house and take a look at the foundations of Australian culture, we'd discover the Christian gospel there. Historian Tom Holland, who was not himself a Christian believer, has argued for this at length in his extraordinary book, Dominion, The Making of the Western Mind. He demonstrates that only one culture in the history of the world has ever believed in things like these. 
the inherent dignity and equality of every person, regardless of their race or sex. The existence of certain universal rights that we possess by virtue of being human. That justice should be rendered impartially and righteously to all, regardless of who we are. That self-sacrificial love is the noblest of virtues. That humility and gentleness are signs of true strength. That showing compassion for the weak and the marginalised is a moral obligation. That history is going somewhere and that there is hope for a better future. Western culture is built on these ideas, and all my post-it note readers would take them for granted as being normal and obvious and true. But you won't find these ideas at the heart of ancient Roman or Greek or Aztec culture, or for that matter in Zulu culture or Muslim culture or Chinese or Japanese or Indian culture. All these values come from the Bible. As Holland points out, how these profoundly Christian ideas have been played out in our culture is a long, complicated and not always pretty story. But his underlying point is not complicated and is hard to argue with. Our whole society is deeply Christian in its origins and in most of its core values, even though it is now no longer Christian in any explicit sense. It is post-Christian. And so it is for the names written on post-it notes on the side of my computer monitor. They are not gospel believers, but their lives are deeply shaped by the Christian gospel. And this puts them, and most of our culture, in a strange and somewhat conflicted position. Most of what we hold dear is built on Christianity in some way or other, and yet we don't want Christianity. This contradiction has consequences, both for our society and for us personally, as we'll see in chapter 2. This brings me to the twofold reason I have for wanting to speak to my imagined readers in this book. Firstly, I'd like to help my readers understand themselves. Where we've come from helps us know who we are, for better and for worse. It's why adoptive children seek out their birth parents. It's why chasing down the family tree or sending our DNA to Ancestry.com is so popular. The Christian gospel is where we've come from. It explains who we are. But my strong suspicion is that most Australians, including my post-it note readers, don't really understand it. I've been talking with people about the Christian faith for nearly 40 years and... My universal experience is that most everyday people have major misconceptions. They think Christianity is about going to church or having a religious kind of personality or supporting traditional values or being a good moral person or trying to please God so as to get into heaven or inhabiting a particular subculture or avoiding particular practices, no sex, no drinking, no dancing and so on. At its heart, Christianity is none of these things. I'd love to clarify that for my readers. I'd like to clear away the cobwebs and help them understand what the Christian gospel really is, and in so doing, help them understand themselves and the culture we inhabit. But that brings me to a second, more important aim. I wonder whether you think that the values I listed above 
are just a description of what people in Western culture happen to approve of? Or are they more universal and important than that? Love, justice, the dignity and value of each person, that kind of thing. Are these a set of convictions that our culture has just chosen for whatever reason? Or do you think that they are based on how the world really is and should be? Do you think that these values are in some deep sense true? I'm convinced they are. And I'm convinced that this is because the Christian gospel they are based on is true. I believe it explains the way the world really is and who we really are and what our lives are really for. If that is the case, if the Christian gospel is true, then it's worth building our lives on. And conversely, if it is true, then to ignore it or reject it is to build our lives on an uncertain and unstable foundation, which is really good. The person who will figure most prominently in the pages to follow once put it this way. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. That's Jesus speaking in the blunt and challenging way that he usually spoke. And perhaps I can be similarly straightforward. My second and main aim in this book is for my readers not only to understand the Christian gospel, but to embrace it for themselves, to build their lives on that rock. Actually, let me put that differently. I'm hoping that my readers will arrive at a new understanding and relationship with the person at the centre of the Christian gospel, with Jesus Christ himself. As we'll see in the chapters to follow, the Christian gospel is really all about him. It's right there in the name. All the other practices and traditions and trappings that we associate with Christianity are really footnotes and side issues by comparison. Jesus himself is the message. From the very beginning, when Jesus' followers began broadcasting the news about him, their preaching was built around who Jesus was and what he had done. And in particular, the meaning of his death on a Roman cross and the claim that he had risen from the dead to be Lord of all. That's the Christian gospel in a nutshell. Jesus Christ dying for our sins and rising to be the Lord of all. But it's a very compressed and strange nutshell when you think about it. Who was this man, Jesus? Why was the title Christ added to his name? What are sins? And what does it mean for someone to die for them? And is it believable that he was raised, let alone that he became Lord of all? And why is that significant? Perhaps more to the point, is this strange message really true? And how could it provide a solid foundation for the way we live? Well, at least those are the kinds of questions I think my post-it note readers would ask. If you find yourself interested to ask those same questions and to find out some answers, then this book is for you as well. Over the next six chapters, I'll do my best to explain the essence of the Christian gospel and what it means for our lives. 
in order to do that, I'll need first to paint some background. The centre and climax of the Christian message is Jesus himself and his death and resurrection. But to understand those momentous events, we have to start a little further back. At the very beginning, in fact. Well, that's the introduction to the Two Ways to Live evangelistic book that I'm working on. Or at least it's the first attempt or the first draft of the introduction. And I'm not really happy with it yet. And I'm sure there's lots of ways that we could improve it. Here's a few reflections for you as you think about it and give me some feedback. I'm trying to do a few things in this introduction as I think about the kind of people that the book is aimed at. And first of all, I guess I'm trying to intrigue them about the place of Christianity in their lives and culture. One of the problems in evangelism is that the gospel is currently outside of what some people call the Overton window, that is the frame of subjects that normal people talk about. The gospel is just not one of the live, normal subjects we have for general discussion in the media or in our general chat with people. And the stuff in this intro about Western culture and so on is really an attempt to bring it back inside the window. I'm trying to say to the reader, you actually need to know and think about and engage with Christianity because it's much more central and important in your life than you think. Then, in the next little bit, I'm really trying to clear away, I guess quite briefly, a few misconceptions about what I might be about to say to unsettle the reader's expectations for what will follow. It might not be about what they think it's going to be about. Christianity might be mysterious. It might be something that they don't really understand. In other words, there's a little bit of Act 17 about this introduction, in a sense. It starts with their culture and the fact that they don't really understand their culture or know the person who lies behind it. And then it leads towards Jesus as the climax of what the presentation is going to be about. In terms of the tone of the introduction, I'm trying to kind of tread a line. I don't want to be too aggressive or scary, especially at this early point, as I'm trying to draw the reader in and motivate them to keep reading and turn the page. But I also don't want to be too cap in hand, too apologetic about what's coming, about the importance and truth of the gospel. It's worth setting up the expectation at the outset that we're dealing with something big and massive and true and momentous, something life-altering. I still have questions, for example. It's interesting that you might have noticed this. There's no God in this intro. There's us and our culture and our lives and there's Jesus. But God doesn't get a mention. Is that a mistake? I'll certainly get to God very soon in chapter 1, but is it okay to leave the subject of God till then? I'm still thinking about that. I also toyed with saying more in the intro about how the abandonment of Christianity by our culture and by my readers leads to dysfunction and damage socially, personally. But I decided to save that for chapter 2, where we'll deal with that in more detail, with the negative consequences of rejecting God and his rule. I'm really looking forward to your comments on this first draft. Fire away. Don't at all be hesitant about saying what you think needs to change. The whole purpose of first drafts is to produce the second draft. The first drafts don't matter very much, and I'm not at all closely attached to it. So please let me know what you think and how I could improve it. Thanks again for being involved in this and for listening. Look forward to hearing from you about this introduction. I'm Tony Payne. Bye for now. 